Tēnā koutou no mai haere mai, welcome to q and I'm Jack Tane. In two and a half hours, we move to alert level three. Thousands of Kiwis will be able to go back to work. Thousands more are probably preparing to hit up their favourite drive through But what economy are we returning to? And what will it mean for that Kiwi favourite, housing? Good news out of this is that for those people that haven't been able to jump on the property ladder, you know, buy a house, well, the market's going to be moving in your direction. Just be patient. Tonight, we'll ask our panel if Simon Bridges will make it to the election as National Party leader. Plus, some positive news. Even now in the throes of coronavirus, there are industries crying out for employees. We could fill in very quickly if people just stop and look at the skills they already have. Most jobs in the tech industry are transferable from people in other roles because they're across all sectors. As I'm sure you know, we're about to leave the Level 4 lockdown for what we all hope is the first and last time. Thousands of Kiwis will head back to work. But with cash flow issues, physical distancing requirements and most of our kids still at home, it'll be pretty tough for many Kiwi businesses. I asked economist Cameron Bagri just how significant tomorrow's transition is. We've got to put a sense of perspective on this. You think about your house as the New Zealand economy. In level four meant we were allowed in two parts of our house the essentials. Now that was the kitchen and the bathroom. Now what does going from a four to a three plus mean? Well, we're allowed in the laundry. Yeah, but most of the house is, is still off off limits. Yeah, only five percent of kids are going back to school. You think about the productivity of the economy in a level through three or a, or a COVID world. If you look at the size of the New Zealand economy, mm. the turnover, the sales and income of the business sector across New Zealand is 700 billion. Now, yeah, that, that's about 60 billion a month. Now, Treasury's working assumption within their level four scenario was that we shut 40% of the economy down. Yeah, what's the cost of that? About $24 billion in a month. Now, we moved down to a three, so maybe you know, more of the economy is operational, so we've only shut down about 25%. Mm. Yeah, what's going to be the output loss there? About $15 billion. Yeah, So, yes, we're, we're turning the dial. We're moving back into, into work in a gradual, gradual fashion. But the, the economic hits that the business sector is taking in regard to foregone sales is mm. massive. Yeah, some some pent-up demand is going to occur. So we're all going to rush out and buy some KFC. We'll go rush out and get some haircuts. But for a, for a construction sector firm, they're not going to get that work lost in the month of April. And when do you expect we'll get clarity about just how much of an economic hit this is going to be? The, the problem is with the with the hard data out of Statistics New Zealand, it comes out with a big lag. It's mm. it's quite old. Yeah, we've got what we're going to be looking for is yeah, timely economic indicators that are pretty decent barometers. So things such as traffic volumes. And we're going to be looking at the level of traffic volumes, not the change from week to week. Mm. Yeah, we're going to see, obviously, some big lifts after a collapse as we go back down to different levels. But traffic volumes now are down about 70 to 80 per cent. And we go back to a, a three plus, maybe we're going to be down 60 to 70. Yeah, the key issue here is that how quickly is the economy going to recover to pre-COVID levels? I suspect it's going to be quite a long time. We're going to be looking at job ads, mm. at job seeker benefit numbers. Personally, I'd like to see daily numbers reported alongside the COVID infection figures. Yeah, we may be flattening the curve on one, but the other one's headed north. Let's talk about the government's wage subsidy. There have now been half a million claims. Are you happy with what you're seeing? 
Yeah, the great news is it's very transparent. You know, so we know who took the money and we can make judgments. I think there's, there's five types of firms. You know, there's the firms who genuinely needed it, you know, particularly hospitality, anything tourism-related. There's firms who are unsure what revenue mm. will be like and have taken it and parked the money. If they needed it, they'll keep it. If they didn't need it, they're probably going to pay it back. There's firms who didn't need it but saw an opportunity. Yeah, what percentage of firms is in that camp? We don't know. Yeah, there were firms who are entitled to it, but have drawn a line in the sand and said, no, it's not the right thing to do. Yeah, I think they're looking at the spirit of the scheme and saying, look, I'm still profitable, so I'm not taking the money. And then you've got the firms who, who didn't need it, and it's by and large been business as usual. Yeah, what we're seeing is different, differing moral compasses across firms, even within sectors. Yeah, we're seeing some firms mm. in certain sectors that are taking it and some firms that are not. You know, I think some firms for us doing this have some pretty serious reputational brand damage if they get found out that they've taken the money and they didn't need it. Well, you've been calling out some of those firms online. Do, do you think uh, that firms that have taken the wage subsidy should be subject to more scrutiny? Well, you hope so, yeah, because it's, mm. it's taxpayer money. Yeah, you, you'd, you'd hope that... You know, there's a big shade of grey here. Yeah, mm. So a lot of firms... And, yeah, I, I popped at a couple of meat companies... Because it you know, looked a little bit odd that they'd taken you know, like 77.7 odd, mm. odd million of taxpayer money and a lot of other meat companies had not. You know, I see within the Farmers Weekly this week, you know, one of those meat companies said they're going to be basically fully operational as of tomorrow. In fact, they're working overtime to keep up with demand. So I'm sort of scratching my head and thinking, well, I hope that money's going to get paid back pretty quickly well, as a consumer. Bad, oh, we don't want to name names. I'll go over read to the front page of the of the Farmers Weekly in regard to the, the article. I'll be polite. Yeah, one of the companies that didn't take it was AFCO, yeah, Greenlee Meats. Yeah, I want to vote with my purchasing power. I'd prefer to support those companies as opposed to the companies that took the wage subsidy. Should it be extended? Yeah, it should be extended, and, and it's going to need to be extended because this thing is, is far from over. If you look at some sectors mm. such as you know, tourism, not just international, but but domestic, they're going to face some huge challenges going forward, and, and they're big mm -hmm. employers. What I'd like to see is the subsidy tweak, so it's a little bit more skin in the game from both sides. Yes, yeah, so I'd actually be inclined to up the wage subsidy, so it was more in line with the, the minimum wage, uh, particularly for the hospitality sector, whose yeah, the income line has basically gone to zero. Yeah, yeah, bigger help from the government, but I'd like to see a hook on the other side. Yeah, I'd like to see it as a loan as opposed to a handout. You know, after two years, turn it to some sort of payroll tax that needs mm. paid back. We've got the mechanisms in place. If the company goes bust, then IOD's a, a preferential creditor. But I'd like to see it a little bit more of a, a meeting of minds style scheme mm. as opposed to something that just you know, puts money into people's pockets. What about housing? Housing is a place where a lot of Kiwis keep their wealth. What are you expecting in that space in the coming months? Well, the optimist will point to a shortage of housing, yeah, mortgage holiday scheme, low interest rates, debt servicing ratios look OK. So they're not expecting housing prices to decline too much on the other side. Now, I think that view needs a pretty big dose of reality. Now, the big issue here is unemployment. It's far worse than what we got to in the GFC. You know, I think we're going to see a big spike in unemployment when the wage subsidy rolls off, even though the government will extend it. You know, the damage to the business sector is, is still being done. You know, we've paid a massive price containing this thing, 
and we're going to need to continue to detain it and stop it re-entering. Migration inflows will, will be limited. Mm. And so that supply-demand imbalance that we've had talked about housing shortage, I don't think that's going to be too you know, much of a problem going forward. House prices to incomes is a measure of uh, valuation. In Auckland, that ratio is seven prior to the global financial crisis. Auckland is now at nine. You know, the Airbnb market income has disappeared. Foreign students too. Rents are going down. You know, I think a lot of landlords are going to be hitting up the eject button. Yes, banks are being encouraged to be courageous and get money into people's pockets. Mm -hmm. But the reality is that banks are tightening up the availability of credit and they're focusing a lot more on deposits. You know, lower interest rates normally propel the housing market sharply up the other side to assist with the recovery when you go down. Interest rates are already pretty well at zero. Now, we can't take them any lower. So, look, good news out of this is that for those people that haven't been able to jump on the property ladder you know, and buy a house, well, the market's going to be moving in your direction. Just be patient. How much is it going to move? How much a house price is going to drop? Well, if I have a look at what we saw after the GFC, you know, we saw a movement down in New Zealand market, depending on region, of about 8 to 9%. Mm. Now, that was in an environment where the unemployment rate peaked at 67 you know, I think the unemployment rate in New Zealand behind the scenes is all based on the job seeker benefit numbers is already at 6.7. Uh, it's going to be double digit. You know, I'd be penciling in a double digit move for house prices across New Zealand. You know, we shouldn't be too alarmed by that. Let's not forget that house prices across New Zealand in the past 12 months were up in excess of 9%. There's some regions have seen house prices move up more than 20% in the last 12 months. You know, they've been absolutely off the races. Yeah, I think we're going to give back one to two years of gains. Cameron Bagri there from Bagri Economics. Let us know if you agree with his assessment. Will Simon Bridges lead National into the election later this year? We're going to ask our political panel shortly. But first, how much should we damage our economy in order to save lives from the coronavirus? I speak to one of the world's top experts on that very difficult question. What is the value of a human life? From an economic standpoint, it's a slam dunk in terms of its, its attractiveness. Hoki Mayanor, welcome back to Q&A. A warning, this next interview contains mathematics. And it begins with a confronting question. What is the value of a human life? It's a question policymakers actually have to consider all the time. Think about it. Is the cost of a median barrier on a motorway worth the number of lives that it will save? And it's a question at the centre of the coronavirus response. Are the lives saved by the lockdown worth the damage to the economy? Distinguished Professor W. Kip Viscusi is considered by many to be a godfather of the human lives cost-benefit analysis. The US federal government uses his calculation for all of its policy making. And so I asked him, how much is a human life worth? Well, in the United States, a life is worth $10 million. So that would be the value that the government places on preventing one expected death. There will be people I'm sure, who prickle at any monetary denomination being assigned to a human life. Why do you need to make these sorts of calculations? Well, all government regulations, you have to assess the benefits and costs to figure out if it's worthwhile to do it. And to make this comparison, you have to be able to monetize the health risks involved to make them comparable to the monetary costs. But the good news for the people who feel uncomfortable about this 
So $10 million is a very large number. And once the government started using my numbers, regulations that previously had been turned down now were attractive. And so it actually led to more regulation and safer regulations. Just tell us, though, in terms of process, how does assigning a monetary value to a human life help policymakers make better decisions? Well, let's say you have a situation where you're spending $100 million on a particular policy and you're saving 20 lives on average every year. So is it worth it? And these numbers help you make that calculation to figure out, yes, it is worth it. And I've even done that for the coronavirus risk policies in the United States to figure out, are these social distancing strategies that we've adopted worth it? I want to get to your coronavirus sums in a couple of minutes, but tell me about that $10 million figure. I mean, there will be some people who hear $10 million and think it sounds like a lot of money. There will be other people who say a human life is priceless and that the $10 million figure is offensive. What do you say to them? Well, we place a value on our lives all the time. Every time you buy a car that's not completely risk-free, every time you drive a car and incur risks, you're implicitly saying, I'm willing to undertake these activities and expose myself to some risk of death. And what we're trying to figure out is, how much do people really value their lives based on these things, based on the types of cars you buy, uh, based on the job risks people take, and so on. So that's where these numbers come from. It's almost 40 years since you were called upon by the US federal government to calculate the value of a statistical life. Up until that point, they'd simply calculated it by working out a person's potential future earnings. But why was that an inappropriate calculation? Well, the procedure you just described is what people normally think about when you say the economic value of life. Oh, well, look, let's look at their earnings. And that's what the government was doing, not just in the United States, but throughout the world. And this is particularly true of transport or transportation uh, safety uh, regulations, because they looked at, well, what did get people get paid in the courtroom after somebody is killed in an accident? Well, the amount that typically paid is tied to the earnings that are lost because of the fatality. And if you do that, you come up with a number that's basically a tenth of my value of statistical life numbers. And to get a sense of why does it make sense, if somebody was not working at all, let's say they're retired, uh, let's say they're a housewife and who's not in the labor force, right. then if you just look at earnings, their life is worth nothing. And so clearly something's wrong. Tell us then how you reached your figure. Well, I look at how much workers are paid to work on risky jobs. Uh, so to give you an example, uh, in fact, I'll even tailor it to come up with an answer that's like New Zealand's number. Uh, let's say you have 10,000 workers, each of whom faces a risk of one chance in 10,000 of dying on the job. So statistically, what we estimate is how much are workers paid for that extra risk? So in the case of New Zealand, if you have a $4.7 million value of a statistical life, the workers would need $470 each to face a risk of one chance in 10,000 of death. Right. Or doing the multiplication, 10,000 workers 
each of whom faces a risk of one chance in 10,000 of death, would collectively receive $4.7 million in compensation. Right. To be clear, the way you do the sums, the statistical value of a human life means that the life of an 87-year-old is just as valuable as the life of a 5-year-old. Is that right? What I've given you is the average number for an average worker. And these are the numbers that government agencies use for everybody. So an 80-year-old and a 20-year-old each receive the same value. Mm. Uh, now, the actual amount people are willing to pay to reduce risk does vary with your age. But the good news for the older people in your audience is that does not drop off the table. So the value of statistical life, if you look at how much workers need to work on dangerous jobs, their value of statistical life for a 62-year-old worker is higher than that of an 18-year-old. Right. And even though they have fewer years of life left to live, they have more money. And if you're affluent and have more money, you're less willing to expose yourself to risk. So you don't notice a lot of 80-year-olds and 70-year-olds going out and bungee jumping and, and taking substantial risks, for example. There are many people who have, have passed this as a binary decision. We are either prioritising human lives or we are prioritising the economy. Your own president uh, has said we cannot let the cure be worse than the problem itself. Where do you sit on that argument? Well, I think the health risks, at least in the United States, are huge. So by some estimates, including those of the president, uh, these social distancing policies will save at least one million lives. And if you use my $10 billion figure, one million lives times $10 billion of life comes out to $10 trillion. That's half the value of the gross domestic product in the United States. That's huge. That's a real economic loss from the health risks that you could prevent with social distancing. So I'm a big supporter of social distancing myself. I think from an economic standpoint, it's a slam dunk in terms of its, its attractiveness. What about the health risks of an economic recession? Is that something we should consider? I've actually done that too. So I've shown that in the United States, for every $100 million in lost income, there's one expected death. Now, if the richest person in the country loses $100 million, he's going to be fine. But across the entire society, a $100 million loss in terms of lost income means people will have less money for food, less money for good housing, less money for medical care, mm. so that, yes, there is a loss, and some of that loss is suicides, too. When there's a big drop in income, suicide rates go up. There are many commentators in the COVID-19 context who would, uh, I'm sure, point out a problem in the way you've reached your sum, and that is that jobs that have typically not been considered especially dangerous, and I'm thinking of people who stock supermarket shelves, um, you know, people who collect rubbish, for example, those are the people on the front lines of this crisis. Yeah, these workers, if, they, if this continues, they should be paid more. Uh, I mean, that would be only appropriate to pay them more. Right now, they're doing it because uh, they're patriotic, they uh, want to be good citizens to their neighbours. 
But in the long run, to attract people to, to these jobs, the pay is going to have to go up if you're going to be exposing them to serious health risks. Distinguished Professor W. Kip Viscusi. Now, governments value lives in different ways. In Kip Viscusi's last meta-study, he put the value of a statistical life in New Zealand at just under $7 million. But you heard him there using a more conservative number, $4.7 million. That number comes from Treasury via the Ministry of Transport, which considers the cost of road fatalities. Keep that number in mind for a moment, 4.7 million. Because the day before the lockdown was announced, statistics modellers at Auckland University warned the government that in a worst-case scenario, 60,000 Kiwis could die from coronavirus. Simple maths, 4.7 million times 60,000. That's $282 billion, about 90% of our annual GDP in a worst-case scenario. It's time now to check in with our political panel, and we want to begin by considering Simon Bridges' comments this week. Regrettably, the government hasn't done the groundwork on their side of the bargain uh, to be ready to move to greater freedom uh, this week. Did the national leader misread the mood of the nation? Let's ask our panel. Liam here, lawyer and former National Party electorate chair in Palmerston North with us this evening. Liam, apparently Skype or Zoom, I'm not sure which, is packing it in tonight. We were hoping to have a three-way conversation, you know, with the, uh, with the Brady Bunch boxes. But apparently, I don't know, apparently TVNZ hasn't shelled out for Zoom Pro yet. <laughs> so we're going to go to you first and then we will get a different perspective in a couple of minutes. And let's begin with Simon Bridges. He's come under significant criticism over the last week. In your eyes, what has he got right and what has he got wrong? Well, look, I think um, being the leader of the opposition is um, at times a pretty thankless task and he's certainly not getting a lot of um, thanks now. It's hard to know really how he, what he could have done differently. I mean, he, there, there are certainly things he could have uh, he could have framed his criticisms in a more positive manner, uh, perhaps given a bit more acknowledgement to what the, what the government's got right. But fundamentally, the job of a, uh, the opposition leader is to be to criticise and define criticism. Um, so I'm not sure uh, uh, what he really could have done uh, that would be fundamentally different, uh, apart from perhaps how he packaged it. I see uh, a report in the last couple of hours from News Hub suggesting more discontent within the National Caucus. Is there anything to the leadership coup rumours? Um, well, we've just got to remember that this is probably, what, the fifth or sixth time that um, the political pundits have pronounced um, Simon Bridges' career to be at an end, and he's come through it every time. It's, um, not to say that he always will, uh, but put it this way. Look, I think that it would be more surprising that surprising than not if he didn't come under some pressure and some criticism uh, because they're testing times and it's going to be testing for the National Party for the next month or so. Um, having said that, if you look at the um, what why Bridges won the leadership uh, when he did uh, in, in 2018, uh, all of those fundamentals are still there. There's no compelling reason to change. Um, so my anticipation, I would anticipate that there isn't a change. From a strategic perspective, I'm intrigued that Bridges has been as critical as he has been up to this point throughout the lockdown. I would have thought that Nationals' advisers would have seen a better narrative going into the election where they could say, yes, the, the Labour-led coalition did relatively well during the lockdown and the crisis itself, but when it comes to rebuilding an economy, they would look to... their, their performance after the 2008 global financial crisis and point to that... In for, for 
economic cred. Why do you think they haven't chosen that as their strategy? Well, well, maybe that would be a good strategy. Uh, what I would point out to you, I suppose, is that not everything that the opposition does is, is about an election strategy. The opposition has a constitutional role to be uh, a devil's advocate and a critic. Um, and, and even when you don't win a lot of plaudits for being in that position and doing that role, it's actually still pretty pretty important to do that. Um, now, was the, was the messaging and the framing of it right? Well, you know, that's you know that's something that um, that's always open for debate. But not everything is about um, is, is about the immediate uh, political payoff. But what you say is actually quite right. If, the, if there was an election next month, National would be toast. Mm. But there isn't an election next month. The election is in September. And if you think we're still talking about the lockdown uh, in September, um, then you, you don't have a grip on what's, what's coming. Yeah, don't fight September's election in April, necessarily. I want to talk about the transition from Alert Level 4 to Alert Level 3, because I think in the eyes of many, this uh, is a sign of progress, at least in the public health response. But isn't the truth that we are really going to start feeling the pain uh, from the economic side within the next few weeks and months? I think so, and, I, and, I, and I'm really worried about it, to be honest with you, because there is a lag in, uh, in, in how economic activity or the, um, the ceasing of it uh, then hits the economy. So if you get a bit of work into your hands and you start working on it, it might be 60 days before you get paid. And so a lot of firms have still got receipts from work that they did in uh, March and even in February coming in. Now, the last month we have had a uh, virtual shutdown of the economy, uh, certainly a, a massive scaling back. But the pain for that is going to be delayed to an extent. There will be firms that have been holding on um, optimistically for as long as they could. That can't last forever. The subsidy is going to come to an end. We don't have certainty that what's going to replace it yet. So, you know, frankly, I think um, month, there's a real risk that month two is going to be a lot harder than month one. All right, Liam. Great to chat as always. Thank you very much for your time, and I think I speak for the nation. And looking behind you there, when I say dinosaurs, dynamite, what do you think about Simon Bridges' performance? Send us your thoughts. We're on Twitter at NZQ&A. You can post on our Facebook page or email us, Q&A at tvnz.co.nz. Up next, the other half of our compartmentalised panel. And if you're looking for a job, we will tell you who's hiring. I guess pandemonium is probably the word for the next couple of weeks, particularly on Tuesday. As vast numbers of workers are laid off from tourism and hospitality, where will the jobs be as the recovery gets underway? And how will our workplaces change in a post-COVID world? A new vision for the workplace from one of our I most celebrated leaders. more flexibility about where they work, uh, but also understanding productivity doesn't necessarily change or drop when people are given more freedom to work the way they like to. Welcome back to Q&A. And the second half of our non-panel panel, Sue Maroney, former Labour MP, now Head of Community Law Centres of Aotearoa, joins us from Kirikiriroa Hamilton. Tēnā koe, thanks for being with us. Just give us your assessment yeah. of Simon Bridges' performance in the last week. There have been leadership rumours, although nothing substantiated up to this point. How have you assessed his performance in opposition? Well, look, there's two things that New Zealanders want to know um, of their MPs when we're in a crisis. Um, the first thing is that they want to know that, um, that all MPs are putting their needs first, putting New Zealanders' needs first. And, and I think that it looks like Simon Bridges wasn't doing that and people reacted accordingly. The second thing is that um, timing is everything in politics. And he, in terms of the level of scrutiny that he was attempting to put on the government, he just got his timing horribly wrong. So um, not a great performance, but here's the real problem for National. Um, they don't really have um, anyone 
who can replace him. And I think the problems go deeper than just Simon Bridges' performance. We had um, the finance spokesperson just yesterday saying that he thought the way forward from here on in was um, for government to actually encourage government, uh, business to take what he called mad risk. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, where was he during the global financial crisis? Because that's exactly what actually caused that crisis. So I think they've got more serious problems than just Simon Bridges. You say that, you, you say that the, the, the voting public expects, in their expects their political leaders in crisis to have the, the best interests of the nation um, at the forefront of their minds. But, but, but surely Simon Bridges, in, in chairing this special coronavirus select committee and applying scrutiny to, to various government ministers, is doing just that. Well, people want to see all of their politicians pulled together at a time of crisis, um, and so that's what he wasn't able to demonstrate very mm. well. There's a time and a place for that level of scrutiny, and it is when people are feeling much safer about the crisis having passed. Uh, you know, I spent far too many years um, in opposition uh, when I was in Parliament, and one mm. of the things that I learned, because we had um, crises like the Christchurch earthquake when Labour was in opposition, and um, Labour and opposition did actually have that, um, I, I guess, that ability to ensure that we got right in behind government's efforts while people felt that they needed that in, in the midst of the crisis. The scrutiny came afterwards, and that's right and proper. So it is about timing, and Simon Bridges got it wrong. I suppose people would turn to Labour and opposition after the Christchurch earthquake and, and note that you didn't have great success in the elections that followed. I wonder, I wonder, Sue, what you think moving from alert level four to alert level three will mean for New Zealanders, and, and in particular for the economy in the coming months. Are we just about to start experiencing the real pain? Yeah, it's all ahead of us. Look, the government's done a great job so far, but it's way too early to say that it's an outstanding success because the, the hard yards are still, still there in front of us. So the economy is going to take a huge hit. Unemployment is going to grow. Um, at Community Law, we're seeing um, huge numbers mm. of, uh, of cases of employment law that we just haven't, we've never experienced before. So that's just the tip of the iceberg. When the wages subsidy ceases in a couple of months' time, then I think we'll just see another wave of those employment cases coming in through our doors, and that means that there's, uh, you know, there's huge chaos out there in people's lives because we all know how important it is to have the security of a job. Kia ora, Sue. Thanks for your time, as always. Sue Maroney. Pests have had a field day under the Level 4 lockdown with big delays on scheduled trapping, baiting and shooting. This week's back-to-business message comes from the head of an environmental managed company who feels that inconsistencies in the alert level rules have the potential to hurt small business and the environment. Kia ora, uh, I'm Jordan Munn, I'm the director of Trap and Trigger. Uh, we are a wildlife management company and we deliver conservation services for the protection of New Zealand's wildlife and environment. We have received a wage subsidy which has been a huge help, but uh, overall we're going to lose two months of income and, um, and the wage subsidy is just a portion of our outgoings. Even under level three, we have a lot of restrictions. We most likely can't do our hunting operations. Uh, we can't travel outside our region. Because we, we contract to government departments, we have a 30th of June 
deadline to finish all of our projects. So to get back to business, we need the government to accept that we're a service that needs to operate. Uh, we need to be out of level three as soon as it's possible, uh, given there's no risks. Uh, we need to be able to travel outside of our region to do these projects. Uh, we can do it safely. Um, our staff are well trained. Um, the environment needs it, our company needs it, the economy needs it. We need to get back to business as soon as possible. If you've got a back to business message, Cordette or my, get in touch. It's a chance for business operators, employees, entrepreneurs, anyone really to let our political leaders know what you need to get back to business. So flick us an email, qa at tvnz.co.nz and write back to business in your subject line. We are now less than two hours from the move into Alert Level 3 and a massive day for many Kiwi businesses. If you've lost your job though, and you're wondering who will be hiring soon, the good news is there are industries crying out for employees. Here's Fenner Owen. Famous for its vibrant cafe culture, this is Wellington's Cuba Street as you've never seen it. Tucked in behind the cafe quarter, a locally owned New Zealand-wide food delivery operation is gearing up for its biggest week ever, rushing restaurant food to homes under alert level three. We're just keen to show that we're here to help. Um, we're also here to get back on our feet ourselves after five weeks of lockdown. But how sustainable beyond alert level two are those workforce areas which have boomed under the COVID lockdown? Career companies, food supply chains, supermarket security, fruit picking, community and social services. In Nick Foster's corner of the market, he suspects people will be cautious about eating out for some time yet. There will definitely be a big, I guess pandemonium is probably the word for the next couple of weeks, particularly on Tuesday. Um, but going forward, I, I see the industry still being a vital part of the hospitality industry. The, the industry was moving that way anyway. So over the next year, where will the jobs be? That's the million dollar question, isn't it? Recruitment specialist Ian McPherson. We've been talking to some of our uh, clients over the last few days. They're relatively, they're relatively positive. At the same time, we were talking to a client yesterday who's letting eight carpenters go on. Look, a, a big part of it comes down to what the government does. You know, um, again, talking to a, a reasonably sizable constructor, you know, the indications that they've had, and they do a lot of work with government, is in terms of Ministry of Education and Housing New Zealand, is that, that um, you know, they're going to be busier than ever. And, um, uh, and that's where, you know, some of the investment, some of the shovel-ready projects will, will kick off pretty quickly. There are certainties in the projected job market. Our ageing population means jobs in the aged care sector will be there. Ryman Healthcare, the country's biggest aged care provider, told Q&A they see themselves as a big contributor to the economy's kickstart. This is the old Wellington Teachers College and Ryman's want to turn it into a retirement village. It would be a $200 million construction project, but they're just waiting for the building consent. Meanwhile, Ryman is working on six other retirement villages in the Upper North Island. Builders will pick up their tools again tomorrow. This Miramar street is usually chocker with tour buses. Right round the country, the tourism workforce has been the hardest hit. If you look at the industries that are obviously going to suffer, or the industries where people are going to come out of in volume, hospitality, tourism, you know, that, that, 
those sorts of people are customer focused and um, and are all about people and, and are all about you know enjoying going to work. You know, it's going to be a different sort of work, but um, or different opportunities for them. But if they take those attitudes and, and put them into new environments, then they'll they'll be successful. Seek, New Zealand's biggest job placement company, notes that while job listings fell by 75% from late March, the areas that remain consistent or more in demand were transport and manufacturing, healthcare and IT. Ian McPherson says in less skilled work, often it's attitude that will clinch the job. Employers will grab that and they, and they will teach the skills that are required. Um, but they, you know, they can't necessarily teach people um, you know, to be excited about coming to work. As someone who has worked in job placement through the GFC and the Christchurch earthquakes, Ian McPherson is convinced economic shocks are catalysts for innovation. Job opportunities could open up in surprising areas. There's obviously going to be some new things that come out over the next three, six months, some new industries and new pockets of work that you know, um, someone really innovative is going to come up with and we'll all sit there and say, wow, that was amazing. Fina Owen with that report. And Frances Valentine, founder of Tech Futures Lab, agrees. She has more to say on the job shortages in the tech industry after the break. In fact, she thinks this crisis may be a catalyst for massive change. I think for the first time I'm hearing big, bold conversations globally around putting humanity in the same sentence as the economy and saying, if we're going to get this right, this is actually a chance for us to break the mould. Kia ora te whana. welcome back to Q&A. It's hard not to feel a little optimistic that Aotearoa might be one of the first countries to eliminate COVID-19. But in years to come, will we register this experience merely as a blip or as a fundamental turning point in the way we work and how our economy functions? I spoke with the founder of Tech Futures Lab, Frances Valentine, and asked if she thinks the coronavirus experience will accelerate change in the workplace. Well, there's no, no doubt that this has really put a leapfrog effect on the adoption of technology. And I think for a lot of organisations who have dreamed of the day where people would be able to work more remotely and more collaboratively has really um, become reality very quickly. So I think it will be the new starting point for conversations about workplaces from here on. In what ways do you think workplaces are likely to change? They're simply more likely to let employees work at home? I think the first step will be more flexibility about where they work, uh, but also understanding that productivity doesn't necessarily change or drop when people are given more freedom to work the way they like to. And the other one is the actual adoption of technology. Some people are using these forms of technology for the first time, more collaborative tools, more video conferencing, uh, the, the ability to actually dial people in and have meetings in the same way you could in the real world without all of the, the anguish, I guess, of having to move around cities and countries. Francis, do you see the potential for a different sort of economy in New Zealand in the wake of COVID-19, one that isn't simply focused on the production and trade of things. Where do you see opportunity? I think for the first time I'm hearing big, bold conversations globally around putting humanity in the same sentence as the economy and saying, if we're going to get this right, this is actually a chance for us to break the mould and use knowledge coming out of adversity to inform a different type of economy which brings people back to the forefront. I think we're going to have a really huge need for development of talent. 
uh, emerging new, new uh, industries which are more sustainable. We'll be thinking more about um, viability long-term of, of legacy industries, but also bringing people into higher wage economy and more quality and equity. And I think that can only come with a, you know, a crisis like this. So how might we go about making that change? I think the first one is to actually get the people making the decisions to be not the same people who made decisions before. And so we need new voices at the table. We need to understand what the motivations are of different generations, but also just with a, a different frame of mind. The people who perhaps first of all foremost valued financial remuneration over everything else may be taking a reflective look right now and saying, actually, just by working harder and making more money, that really means to an end. And actually, is our economy really going to be based on that forevermore? So I think new people to the table, but also giving people the chance to breathe, a bit of stillness over this, and actually thinking and reflecting about what we've learned through crisis. Is it unfair for me to characterise this as, as a more holistic economy? Well, I think you could do it. I mean, a lot of people are referring to uh, the donut, donut, sorry, the donut economy, uh, which is picking up pace. And I know the city of Amsterdam has just deployed that, which is very much putting people at the forefront and and putting the home and the uh, the centre of the economy, so people and their environment, and building around it and making sure that we have stability and safety and that we have the uh, potential to thrive. And thriving will mean different things to different people. It's not saying that everybody will want the same thing. Some people want to take this moment to slow down mm. and actually reflect about how they might want more purpose in their life or more time with their children or to have better impact or to change the, the way they live. And it could just be picking up sports and fitness more or be eating better. It's interesting, isn't it? Because, and, and we hope this remains the case, New Zealand, when you compare us to other countries, appears at least to be getting on top of COVID-19 much faster relative to some other major developed economies. I wonder if that means we will be more inclined to try and return to our old form of production and our older economy. I'm, I'm forever hopeful that actually we've been in this long enough. By the time we come out at level into level three, we'll have had five weeks, potentially a few more weeks at level three after that. That's a significant break in tradition and pattern. Mm. And, and so it's also given us a lot of time for reflection. And the value we're putting on to some of the frontline workers, the people who have been overlooked for a long time, and I think they in itself, we start to recognise scientists and, and people who are in the tech industry. We're starting to think about teachers and, and supermarket workers. We're starting to really value different things. So I think that the amount of ground we've covered in five weeks is significant, and that will make uh, the basis of a great change. How has our tech industry coped during the shutdown? Look, I think the tech industry in some ways is the, has the most advantage because they've been working globally, remote, often remote first, they're distributed, they work in teams, often under a sort of agile methodologies. And so then you have a, a structure that's ideally suited. I think it's the more traditional industries that haven't moved and pivoted mm. into the age that are really struggling through this period. There are literally thousands of jobs for computer programmers being advertised in New Zealand at the moment. How quickly could we fill those jobs? We could fill those very quickly if people just stop and look at the skills they already have. Most jobs in the tech industry are transferable from people in other roles because they're across all sectors. So if you look across and think about do you have collaborative skills in online software and perhaps you're really strong in communication or visualisation of data, it's, it's about recognising the tech sector and these people who feel comfortable and confident using technology. 
not that they're experts in coding. And so I think the most important thing is to look where the jobs are and see what skills you can transfer across to those roles. Digital education is your passion. The Ministry of Education uh, was forced to pour a whole lot of money into better resourcing some of our more vulnerable young people over the last couple of weeks. Have they done a good job? Look, I think it's always great to hear where people get more access to technology, um, better Wi-Fi, better connectivity is so incredibly important. What I think is most important coming out of this is we have now proven that there are multiple modalities of education that can be benefit many. And so if you think of so many students are thriving in the self-paced uh, you know, world in lockdown and actually will start to understand where digital is a tool that can really enable learners to learn more but also help others to gain deeper knowledge and expertise that perhaps mm. they can't get all from the traditional classroom. Again then, do you think this is going to accelerate change? Yes, I believe it will absolutely accelerate change for the good. I think the new starting point for education will be where we left off at the end of the lockdown, which will be better tool utilisation, better understanding of how we can learn digitally and online, but also the integration of different tools into the classroom to stretch learning and actually put the context within 2020 and the world we live in. Can you give us the Francis Valentine utopia? If this really is a turning point in New Zealand history, how might our country look in, say, 2030? My dream would be that we would go back to our core of being great innovators. And the tools of innovation today are digital, and actually uh, creativity is going to come to the forefront again. So to get away from doing things because the process or the system says we should do it this way, but actually break away from that and think about new sectors, new industries, clean industries, sustainable uh, sectors, but also enabling people on minimum wage to move into roles that pay better, better lifestyles, and actually become a little bit like the knowledge economy we talked about 20 years ago, bringing it back to the forefront of the, the context of 2020 and beyond. And I think this country could absolutely lead the way with innovation, creativity for the world. Francis Valentine. Stick around, we'll have your feedback after the break. Hoki Mayanor, welcome back. We asked you what would change at Alert Level 3, and you said, not a lot. Many of you were already working. Some had no jobs to go to. Louise emailed to say she's been working the entire time during lockdown, so nothing much is going to change for her. I have been enjoying the quiet roads, though, Louise says. And Sam Hill tweeted, Cameron Bagri is painting a dire picture of the economy. The joyous mood tomorrow will soon give way to questions around how people are going to pay their bills. Kuamutu. That's Q&A for this week. Thanks for watching. And Namahikia Koto Inga Karere. Thanks for your contributions from all the Q&A team. Don't go too crazy at KFRI. Hey Tera Wiki. We'll see you next Monday at 9:25. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand on here.